You're listening to the Felony Inc. podcast on the Startup Radio Network. In America, we live in a society that houses the largest inmate population on earth. And the current cost of mass incarceration via the prison industrial complex is incalculable. So anything that can be done to help curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable. That's what we attempt to do, one show at a time and one guest at a time. Each week, we interview felons and non-felons attempting to make the world a better place for those currently incarcerated, families, and communities affected by the big business of prison. Felony Inc. Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All right, welcome to another exciting edition of Felony Inc. Podcast. Another beautiful summer's day and gorgeous portland oregon as always i'm joined by my great guest host co-host for life meg thibodeau how you doing today i'm good dick it's good to see you again over the the zoom chat from my house to yours still doing the covid times but we're really kind of making it happen feels good yeah still rocking and rolling I'm really excited about today's show. Um, got a great guest. But first, before we get into that, I just want to give a quick shout out to uh, all the uh, inmates down in California that are going to be forced to fight the wildfires that are going to be happening here. I want to just say they're in our thoughts, you know, doing it for very menial amounts of money and uh, risking their lives for virtually no benefit. I uh, hope, hope everyone stays safe down there for sure. Um, but... To change gears real quick, let me just introduce today's guest. Uh, today's guest is none other than Chef James Bradley. Chef James Bradley is the executive chef of Post Shines Cafe de la Soul, located at 8139 North Denver Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 97217. You guys are not familiar with Post Shines. I know I am. I know Meg is. Uh, Post Shines <laughs> is a black-owned contemporary soul food restaurant in Portland, Oregon, and they also offer catering. James, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. We're so glad to have you, James. Welcome. Thank yes. you. Typically, James, how we begin the broadcast is uh, we talk a little bit about maybe your upbringing, uh, just kind of what led you on the path to get to where you're at right now. So wherever you feel comfortable with starting that or whatever you want to talk about, feel free to. I, start, I grew up in rural New Bern, North Carolina. I was born in New Bern. But um, yeah, uh, my father was a preacher. Uh, mother was a sign language interpreter, still is. She works at a grocery store now, but that's okay. Um, what else can I tell you about then? Uh, I love the South. Um, that's where I had my immediate or um, um, elementary school, primary school um, upbringing. We we're extremely close to family. Um, uh, most of my friends were all cousins. So we didn't have many friends. We just had family. Uh, We had fuel on the line, so we didn't have to go anywhere, really. So so going into town was a big deal, which I didn't go into town much because I like to cuss people out. And (laughs) I was a rebel, so like I was always in trouble. And when I say always, I mean a lot, a lot. If I was doing, you had to keep me within arm's reach because if you didn't, I was getting into something. I was jumping off a garage trying to be Superman. I was, uh, um, I don't know, name it. If I was at my gr- grandmother's house way up north in uh, Johnstown, as to where we'd go sometimes um, during, the, during the summer months, um, looking for girls or trying to hang out with girls. I mean, I was terrible. I was just terrible. But um, 
I grew up in the church. Um, that's what I, uh, that's what I know. Um, and that's how we were reared in my father's household. Like, uh, we were taught, um, respect. We were taught, uh, we said, yes, ma'am, no ma'am to all adults. If you were, um, if you were, uh, uh adult conversation was adult conversation. Children were not allowed into adult conversation. If you were to walk up to an adult conversation, the better, at, the better action would be to turn around and go somewhere else or you're gonna get whooped with a switch or a belt because it has nothing to do with you. So with that being said, I grew up um, questioning and challenging things. I would challenge deacons, I would challenge, I wouldn't challenge my dad, but yeah, I would challenge my dad, you know what I mean? But I challenged him more when I was a teenager. So before that, like I just, you know, just little kid stuff, just dumb stuff. Like, did you clean your room? Yeah, I cleaned my room. You didn't clean your room. And uh, uh, hiding stuff underneath the bed, you know the drill. But um, we moved from rural North Carolina when I was like 10 or 11, I think. Um, we did a stint in Fairfax, Virginia, Vienna, Sleepy Hollow, uh, 14th and M in DC. My dad's idea was that he wanted to put us in as many diverse situations, homestead situations as possible. We lived in the suburbs. We lived up like set 14th and M, which is just straight incredible amounts of gun violence. So he would take us from the suburbs to the gun violence, from the gun violence back to the suburbs, to the rural area. So we got a taste of um, pretty much everything you could see on the East Coast, but still with his rules still intact. Um, I wanted to stay down south. I didn't really want to travel up north. Uh, but we want, we landed in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where my father's um, brothers and sisters were. Um, we, I was opposed. I was so opposed I, I'd take myself to a chair when we were um uh, uh, packing all the stuff. So he kept me in the back of the chair and put me in the U-Haul. Like, he's like, that's your work. Where you want to be? Oh yeah, he did that. He did that. All right. You want to be in the chair? We got to leave. So anyway, uh, yeah. Uh, getting to Pennsylvania was something different. That's when I started, um, making up my own mind about certain things. You know, I, I trust and believe in God wholly, even at that time as I do now. But I also, um, just questioned, you know, the hows, the what's, the why's. Like, um, I didn't understand how um, when we moved to Pennsylvania, how uh, other brown skinned peoples could be so mean and rude to each other. I didn't, down home, we don't do that. It was extremely foreign to me. And they were content with living, you know, with trash on the streets and just strange, strange shit, man, just strange stuff. So I had to reacclimate myself to, okay, this is where I'm going to be. So I have to make the best of it. So I made an effort to do that. I didn't, I didn't do so hot at my efforts, but um, we wound up moving. We were living on this place called The Hill or what you call, uh, it's the opposite side. You got, a North, you got a East Harrisburg, you got South Harrisburg, North Harrisburg, all the little boroughs. So we wound up moving to this place called Uptown and uh, we purchased these two early Victorian homes and they were a dollar a piece, but you had to have a little money you had to have at least a thousand dollars or something like that, close to two thousand to show you're going to fix it up. So my dad and mom didn't have any of that at all, but we just did it grassroots style with every little extra penny. Like a great example is my sister, my brother, and myself were in charge of building our own rooms. We'd have to pull out all the lasting plaster and um, uh, put up fresh drywall. But that took um, it took years 
honestly, it took about two years. We all slept in the same room until the whole house was uh, remodeled, like all the way to the um, crown molding and things of that nature. We had to do that all by hand. Each piece, like one foot pieces, we were all responsible for. So we, it was a strict, strict household. Like, uh, like I said, what he said is what he meant. I mean, there was a situation where we're all living in the same room, wintertime, Harrisburg, you know, like 15 below zero, wind chill of 35 below, just horrible conditions. I remember watching my dad. Um, I remember hearing crying and I'm looking through the hole in the floor um, and you could see our kitchen. And um, he was downstairs just crying and I didn't understand what's going on. But the pipes had burst and there was at least two, at least a foot of ice in the kitchen. So, you know, in his mind, I just meant more money. But I watched this man kneel and pray on this ice and watch um, miracles happen. I mean, people would show up with things that um, you could only get with money. And he didn't ask nobody physically, but in spirit, he asked the Lord. And these things came manifest and we wound up getting the house together. Um, but the people in the neighborhood hated us because we wanted to progress. They hated us because uh, these are our own people. Um, they hated us because we um, had discipline and we were um, straightforward and we were uh, clean people. So if we saw trash rolling down the street, we pick it up. And my mother's mantra was, you know, if, if it's your trash, if the trash rolls down the street, you might as well go all the way up the street and gather all that trash so it doesn't go all the way down the street to our little corner. So that's what we would do. We get laughed at, our families would get, our family would get in fights with just hood rats because they thought we were white because we were cleaning up our property, all sorts of stuff, man. It was just, it was madness, madness. We got through it, but that's what I believe sparked that rebellious side of me because I couldn't, I couldn't muster the, uh, uh, Back to love and kindness. I couldn't, I come from love and kindness. We all come from love and kindness. So I was lost as to why these people, our people, our own folks, people of color want to attack us. So I learned how not to be so nice all the time and learn how to protect myself. Because if I'm reading a book and I'm heading to high school or skateboarding up the road, that's a white boy thing. Or if I'm reading a book, that's a white boy thing. And I'm like, what are you talking about? These are black letters. I don't understand. <laughs> I was in a white boy thing, but these are black letters. It doesn't make any sense. So I had to learn to fight um, brutally at, a, uh, at, a, at the young age of 12, 11 or 12 or 13. So, um, again, I was just a rebel. I didn't, I mean, I like hip hop, but I like, you know, punk rock and the Dead Kennedys. Anything that said anti-government or anti, uh, uh, I guess I could put it uh, to be more clean. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm a trendsetter. I'm not a trend follower and I never have been and I don't know if I ever will be. You know, and I believe that that's what helps me cleave to the Lord even more. Jesus was a trendsetter. Like he brought the trend to us of love and of kindness and of wisdom and of righteousness. And nobody wanted to see that. I mean, who do you, act, how are you going to tell somebody to love their, their neighbor and the same mouthful say, love your enemy. And this enemy has decimated your family. How do you do that? How do, how do you? How do you, you have to learn how to do that. You have to learn to forgive. You have to learn to love. You have to learn to be responsible for the emotion that we've been given. Um, I'm sure you're both wondering like, whoa, have you always thought like this? Yeah, I'm a special human being. And that's why I tested the waters. I mean, a good example is um, 
I hated Pennsylvania so much that uh, every time I got in a position where I heard audibly, you probably shouldn't do that, I would do it just to test the waters because that's the kind of person I was. Um, my first uh, um, running with the law is, um, I think I was 17 and I was just ready to leave Harrisburg. I just couldn't stand it. Just couldn't stand it because everyone works for the state in Harrisburg. No one wants to do anything different. Everyone does the same thing and everyone hates that they do the same thing and they all love to complain together. It's gross. Anyway, um, there was a situation where this guy had, um, maybe stole my girlfriend's watch. I don't know. That memory is kind of shady. I just think I did what I did just to do it, <laughs> honestly. But I used to roll with this crew. We called ourselves uh, Samaki Posse or Whitefish Posse. And the, the fish is a fertility symbol. Just anyway, more biblical, historical stuff, stuff. But um, this cat stole this watch. I wasn't sure if he stole it, whatever, whatever. I drank a bunch of malt liquor and... Um, None of my friends really liked the guy. So I thought, you know, why not just make an example of him? So I did. And um, we were at this party. We drove like, I don't know, it was probably 10 or 12 carloads of people headed to this party. Like we knew a lot of people and a lot of people followed me for the antics I would come up with. But this, uh, I just assumed this guy stole the watch. So um, I drank a six pack of King Cobra, if I believe, if I'm correct, and um, drank it all. And uh, he come around the corner, so I, I punched him in the face. And then my other friend, then he retaliated on my other friend. And um, that sparked something in me. And then his girlfriend retaliated on my friend, like he smashed 40 bottles up against his temple, his blood everywhere. It's mayhem. And I uh, said, so let me just end this. And I took a radio and smashed it on his head. And he fell down. And I walked about, I don't know, maybe 10 foot maybe 12 foot, took a few steps back, smashed the radio on his head, took a few steps back, smashed the radio on his head, took a few steps back, smashed the radio on his head. I did it continually until like, um, really couldn't recognize his face, but uh, there was gray matter coming out of his ear and I knew I was in trouble. I said, okay, this is, this is bad, this is bad. So I round the crew up and we all got out of there and the, um, the law came to the house, my house, and uh, I asked my dad my name the next morning and I just let them know, don't even, I said, dad, don't, I, I did what they said that I did. So um, they're probably going to take me away. And there's nothing you could do because I did it. You know, I'm not proud of it, but I did it. So um, they locked me up for about four to six months. That one's kind of blurry too. Um, just because a lot was going on. I was um, scheduled to go to college, this, that, and the other. It was a felony. And uh, at a young age in Pennsylvania, it doesn't sit too well. They wanted to give me uh, um, assault and battery with the attempt of malice, which held five years. And uh, I was ready to do the time. I was ready. But um, because I had no priors, they allowed me to go to college. But the judge was very clear that, you know, this record would stick with me for a while. And... Um, if I got into any other situations that uh, he would find a place underneath the jail for me. And uh, I know that he was serious <laughs> because he knew that I came from an upstanding home. He knew that my daddy was a preacher. He knew that, you know, this is foreign to our circle. He knew that and wanted to make an example. And I happened to be that example. So 
You know what I mean? I did the time. I got out when I was supposed to get out and went to college. But the first day of college, my uh, roommate, um, at that time, I, was, I wouldn't say I was homophobic. I just didn't understand. And I didn't like to be approached by um, older gay men asking strange questions about my penis and my body. So I would definitely put my dukes up for that because, like, I'm riding a skateboard. This doesn't make any sense, man. I didn't, I didn't solicit you, so why are you soliciting me? So prior to all of this, I've had some situations with um, uh, just older homosexuals. That were just weirdos. They were freaks, whatever. I tell you this because um, my roommate at the time, my first roommate at college, I was a gay man. I was cool, whatever. I just let him know my boundaries. You sleep here, I sleep there, whatever. Um, first day of school, I wake up, and this man's dead. He OD'd. And I didn't know anything about heroin. I didn't know anything about that. I drank a little bit. Well, a little bit at that time was a lot. But um, I drank a little bit and I didn't realize what to do. But the shock factor is what kind of um, took me aback. I was like, whoa, hold on a second. What do I do? So I went about, went about my day like normal. Like uh, I had to go to orientation. Uh, you know, my parents double mortgage a house. I had to do what I had to do. So I was definitely in shock. So skateboarded to school, smoked my last bowl of weed, um, and uh, got to lunch midway through, and I realized I was about to eat some purple cabbage, and I was like, oh my goodness, his feet, his hands, and his face were purple. This man is dead. I can't go back there. So I told our president of the school, the headmaster of the school, and um, not even seconds after I tell him, I'm in cuffs. Um, because they automatically assumed that I did it. And um, I had to get my dad on the line and all this other stuff. And they, uh, um, they washed that one away and wanted to give me um, uh, all straight A's for the semesters that would be there for the next three years. I said, no, my parents, we put a lot of money into this. So I have to get what I came for. I have to get my education. Thank you. But no, thank you. Offer me no counseling. Offered me no counseling or anything like that. So I just, I just got through. But because of that, I think it kind of shook my rebellious mind that, you know, the police don't give a shit about me. I know my parents do, but this society, this world is um, not this world, my world, Baltimore City at that time, um, um, wasn't being responsible for the situation that I was placed in. And they didn't really want to hear my story. I can say that now, but then, you know, I'd have probably just used a bunch of F-bombs because that's how I felt. Like it just didn't, I knew I was going to get an education. I knew I was going to get an excellent education. I knew I was going to get a 4.0 because I'm tenacious. But the other stuff um, didn't, I guess, didn't settle in me. So whatever I could do to be rebellious, I would do within the limits of the law. I mean, I, uh, not even months after that, I, told myself I was going to become a drug addict, but still get good grades, still go to school, still carry on my career. So uh, this, um, these folks across the street, this lesbian couple, they're real sweet, introduced me to cocaine and heroin. And um, I got involved in that, still got great grades. You know what I mean? I learned, I, could, I didn't convince myself. I told myself I wanted to know about, I needed to know about the people that my parents didn't know about. You know, they couldn't teach me about a drug addict. They couldn't teach me about that stuff. So um, I went on investigating, you know what I mean? And before I knew it, I became a 
crack cocaine user and a heroin user. And a, uh, uh, I was drinking about a fifth a day, roughly. Probably second year of college, finishing my first associate's degree. Yeah, I was an alcoholic, guaranteed. And I needed a drink in the morning, needed a drink in the afternoon, midway through. All to suppress, I believe, these thoughts. All to suppress uh, actions that I'd like to have. I mean, um, uh, or things that I wanted to get done and could not get done. Um, because I didn't realize, I realized, but I didn't realize. I knew you went to culinary school, you come out with some credentials. I convinced myself as soon as I came out of culinary school, I'd be a chef. And that was quickly nipped in the bud in the first nine months. Like, uh, I talked to a lot of chefs and they saw the uh, potential in me and they're like, that's not how it works, man. You got to get underneath somebody's wing. So that's what I did. And uh, I was extremely, um, persistence and understatement, whatever book you could give me about culinary arts, I would read and then experiment at home. Even if I needed to steal things from the campus, I'd do that. Taught myself how to make bread, how to make cakes, all sorts of stuff, just to keep my mind busy. Um, yeah, and uh, it wasn't until I got to Portland, Oregon. I've been in Portland for 27 years, came out here for a skateboard park because my good friend recognized that um, I was losing a lot of weight. I was smoking more coke and doing more heroin, still keeping a job, but I was dying. And um, he said, come on out here to the skateboard park. And uh, that's what I did. We rolled out here. And then it wasn't until I got out here, maybe seven, three or four years in that I got a DUI, then another DUI. So I wound up getting, so now I got about three felonies. <laughs> My first DUI, I did about six months. Second DUI, I did about six months. Um, and in and out in between five years of those two DUIs collectively, I would say about 18 months easily. So collectively I've done about three years, I think roughly two and a half years, three years, but that got old. Uh, my last one, it just got really, really old. Um, the last DUI, I just, not that I couldn't control my drinking. I didn't want to. So it took a minute to, uh, for me to um, recognize that it, that wasn't the path for me. And the last one took the last DUI. And then I, on the second DUI, I got a, um, a looting charge where I got out of the car and I ran. The funny thing is the police officer saw me a year later. He's like, man, I had another call. If you wouldn't have got out of the car and ran, we'd have let you go. But I believe that was for me. I needed to go back to jail. I needed to see those things that I'd seen. I needed to be locked up with, you know, um, child molesters and woman abusers and just crazy people just to remind myself that sure I'm on that line, but I haven't crossed that line. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it was a, yeah, it was a, it was, go ahead. James, I'm going to stop you right there. We're going to pause for an ad. You're such an eloquent storyteller. Um, and, it, and I feel like we're getting to the, the, the turnaround part of your story. So let's take this opportunity to just pause and pay some bills. And then we'll come back in just a second right. and, um, and keep going. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. 
Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. All right, welcome back to Philanic Podcast. If you're just joining us, today's guest is Chef James Bradley from Poshan's Cafe de la Soul. So, uh, James, we were kind of going over a little bit of uh, how the, the table started to turn in your life, the transitional period from, um, sounded like you were kind of just wandering around without really 100% direction and what you wanted and kind of spinning your wheels. And then, um, uh, to me, the story about uh, the, the last time you were going to jail and you could have not ran and, and not went to jail was kind of like when the light bulb moment hit. Yeah, yeah, um, so. that 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 was the, uh, the beginning of the light bulb. And, uh, <laughs> um, I had prior to the second DUI, I had, um, prior to the second DUI, I had lived underneath the Burnside bridge, uh, when I got to Portland. So I put myself in a place where I'd be homeless and, uh, that was new to me. I just wanted to be around skateboards and other skateboarders, but that was, I think that piece was helping me grow just a camaraderie, other men that want to, that we share the same common goal, you know, just getting better at our tricks. But the, uh, the amount of consumption that we participated in down there was, should have killed a lot of people, but didn't. Um, I could see myself in other people down at the skateboard park, just um, dying, you know, dying. So prior to the second DUI where I got out and ran, you know, I was thinking all those thoughts. Do I need to be down at that skateboard park? Is that really that's something I need? I can just go down there when I feel like it. You know what I mean? And um, I kind of broke away from those people just because some were getting into heroin use and all that stuff. And I was like, I'm not trying to go back there. Da, 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 da. And um, my father had come to visit a little after the second DUI. Yeah. And he gave me an ultimatum. Again, a preacher, psychotherapist, doctorate in education, doctorate in gerontology, doctorate in theology, doctorate in divinity. It's an awesome human being. Um, very forgiving, very loving, very um, responsible um, when it comes in, to the spirit and when it comes to his physical being and what he needed to do for us now that we were kids outside of the house. But he had come to give me something and wanted to stay for two weeks. And um, when he came to my house and recognized I was growing weed in the basement and uh, selling cocaine at night, he said, man, I can't I can't hang out with you. I got I got to go. But you just got to promise me something that broke me that uh, sent me. um, I guess the best word, the best way to put it is it it broke me. I was um, um, I was my best friend and he didn't want to be around me. And it wasn't because I smelled, it was because of choices I was making. Mind you, I had two children in tow and their mother was not there. She just decided to do something different. Um, 
long and short of it is uh, um, um, I had to make those choices. I had to come clean with myself and with um, the fact, how was I going to stop doing coke? How was I going to stop uh, um, um, drinking? Um, I just had to make the choice. So we got up and moved. And uh, we moved from Northeast Portland to North Portland. And uh, we wound up living on um, Denver and Kip, Denver and Farragut. So I was away from the drugs, not really away from the alcohol. But, you know, the stragglers would still come to the house. And I was trying to make an effort to nip that in the bud. And again, it was just this. I, I just couldn't. I would smoke crack and open the Bible and get mad because I couldn't get high. It was strange. At this time, uh, my girlfriend was living with me. Uh, she's my wife now. And um, um, she would say things to me like, you're too good for this. Like, what are you doing? You're not even from this. And I believe that that was God speaking through her. And because uh, she wasn't re reared in the church, but every time she'd come to me with concern, like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing that? You know what I mean? So just simple questions is what helped me question myself and uh, make it, make a make a stand for myself because i couldn't do it for my kids a lot of a lot of people who've been in drug and alcohol um situations i'm gonna do this for my kids and as a as a preacher i mean as a minister um i let people know don't do that don't do that shit don't do that shit for your kids do that for you because you're worth it you know you have a lot to offer most people have a lot to offer but we get challenged by the bad choices we make and we think we got to carry that guilt around with us for years that's not true God isn't into guilt. Jesus isn't into guilt. Whatever you did, you did. Drop it and go forward. And uh, that's that's what's hard for a lot of folks. You know, it was extremely hard for me. I didn't want to let go of these quote unquote friends and or associates. You know, people who I've been locked up with, people who haven't been locked up with, people who patted me on the back because I was sticking it to the man. All this extra stuff. It wasn't it wasn't real, but it was real. If that makes sense, like it was a a lot of it was a figment of my fantasaic imagination you know i wanted to be this mass marauder this uh, uh robin hood kind of person and you can't change the system unless you're within the system you have to you have to find a way to purge that circle get inside that circle act and talk like they do but your agenda has to be different and sure, slowly but surely you know through your example and other examples you can make a change it's work it's work so most people have i believe most people have a situation with recovery because they don't think it'll work but you have to be everyone's in recovery you know whether or not you're if you're not drinking if you're not coking if you're not over shopping if you're not sexing too much everyone's in recovery man so for um for me to recognize the love for myself and 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 lift myself out of the situation you know what i mean i just have to give a large shout out to um to god and to christ because hadn't i known those fundamentals i think i might be equally as lost right now at 48 years old because if you're not reared in ideas or structure of self-betterment it's foreign to you so to have to relearn that at 27 or 35 or 40 i can't imagine what that's like but I've always had that in the back of my brain because that's how we were raised. You know, my dad would remind us, you know, if you leave the house, you go as a group, you're a Bradley, 
You know, we don't bring home F's and D's because we're Bradley's. These are things that were instilled in me. I'm not saying that it's impossible for another person um, that they can't do that. Even without the structure, you have to find someone that might not be like you, but have goals that you want to reach that they can walk you to these goals, you know what I mean? Or get you close to these goals. Here lately, I, I pushed that, you know, people who are in situations getting out of jail or going back to jail, get yourself around a bunch of men, especially men, you know, men of, uh, of, of good stature, men who have a good heart and men who cleave to the Lord because this is what we've been given. You know, we were made men because, because that was his choice to make us the way we are. But because we're men, we need to protect, we need to provide and do all those things that, we've been asked to do as men. And um, that can be a real challenge getting out of jail. That could be a real challenge consuming lots of intoxicants. That could be a real challenge. So um, it's really hard to work towards something and attain it. If you don't know that it exists and you don't know what it feels like in your body. So I hear you saying that you had that structure from a really young age and yeah, I think it can be done for other people when they have the understanding that it exists and how to embody it. And right. like you said, getting that from mentors is so incredibly helpful. Oh yeah. Um, tell us, tell us a little bit about let's, let's go to Poshines. Tell us how you started that business and, and let's talk about what you well, I didn't start it. It is, it just happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was walking down the street. This was in my transitional phase, like where we had moved to um, Farragut in, in Denver. And uh, I was walking down the street and I uh, heard um, church music that I was familiar with. I believe the uh, song was, um, I'll remember the song here in a minute. Um, the song was be encouraged, be encouraged, no matter what's going on, he'll make it all right, but you gotta stay strong. So I'm walking down the street and I hear this and just out of my chest, like, felt like my heart was gonna pop out. I'm like, oh my God, what the hell's going on right now? This is terrible. So I know that that was the Lord calling me. Either way, I walked right on past it, hit the liquor store, but on the way back from the liquor store, I heard it again and I'm like, whoa, this is... This is where I, like, I just, it was like, not like, I mean, you could cartoon it up all the way you want. I was drawn to the music because I'm familiar with the music because it's in my bones. So I walked into the uh, uh, church house and um, Reverend uh, Pastor Mondane was preaching and um, he pointed me out and uh, read my story. And the man had never met me a day in my life knew almost everything about me and the trials and tribulations I'd gone through. And later I learned that he was a prophet. Later I learned that he was an apostle and um, I was smitten. Like this is where I need to be. So then I had to make, you know, the changes, everything that had to do anything with drugs. I got rid of my dog, all the equipment, all the equipment, meaning like stereo equipment. Tea. I sold it all, got rid of all of it. Even if I had to um, um, give it away, I didn't care. Um, and I introduced my, my immediate family, meaning my girlfriend and my, uh, um, son and daughter to, uh, uh, the church and we wound up joining church and in the interim, they had the Poshine space. It was called uh, Fridays and, uh, they weren't doing too much with it. And they had refrigerators up against the window. And at this time I had a job, I had two jobs. I had my catering, I had a catering company and, um, 
uh, um, I was working at this little Creole spot right up off of Killingsworth and didn't really want to be there, but I'm just, you know, just doing it to do it, whatever, just doing it to stay forward. And um, I let uh, the, uh, the powers that be here at now post shines, let them know, you know, I'm ready to, you guys need a chef. I could do this. You know, I could, I've done build outs before cause I had like maybe 10 or 12 build outs where you take a raw frame and turn it into a restaurant it takes time, but I've, I've done it, done it a few times in this city. And so what uh, happens when you learn how to build your own room when you're 12, yeah. I think. Yeah. Something, <laughs> something like that. That and just being tenacious, you know what I mean? The Lord showed me years ago that I'd have my own, but it wouldn't be like, like I wanted it to. It would literally serve the community. You know what I mean? I've done a lot of fine dining work at great restaurants. So I don't even need to mention. It's not even necessary. But also recognizing those times that I'm dealing with these fine dining restaurants with appetizers at 45 and $60 a plate. That shit ain't got nothing to do with where I'm from. And they're robbing people. You know what I mean? All for prestige. That's not the chef I wanted to be. I was that chef, but I had to um, switch it up because I knew that he had a deeper plan for me. And um, I just told the people at Post Shot, they, they, they had me do a working interview where um, I uh, uh, cooked a bounty of food uh, for all the pastors. And um, they all loved it. They were slayed by it. Like, whoa, this is incredible. Who are you again? But at that time, I had dreadlocks all the way down to my butt. And I was still in that rebellious, you know, you can't change the way I look stage, whatever, whatever. So um, um, I committed to being here. We si I signed a little one-year contract. I think I worked for like 300. I worked a full year straight and didn't take a break. And they were intrigued by that. Like, who is this guy? And when's it going to stop? Like, when's it going to turn off? Like, this is way too much. But it doesn't turn off with me. I'm a culinarian. I'm, I'm a I'm a servant to the public through culinary arts, you know, and uh, I take it serious, so serious that I don't even know when I'm tired. And I'm learning that now. I'm learning that balance between ministry and uh, home life and restaurant life. It's, it's a challenge. It's very difficult. It's very difficult because, you know, I have to remember that I have a, I have a, a wife, beautiful wife, awesome wife to go home to and beautiful children to go home to, and they need nurturing too. So I have to remind myself of that because I get lost. I get lost in, you know, making good food and, and being there for the public. So um, um, that's how it started. Like um, our, uh, uh, our pastor said, you know, this is the way he wanted it set up. So we set it up like that. You know, we, we decided on the colors, decided on the menu, but it was an art. It was, it was, it was tough times because when we first started, we were making, Started with a Presbyterian loan, I think, of like maybe $2,400. So that doesn't go too far in the restaurant business. So a lot of us were pulling money out of our pockets to keep it moving or using food stamp money to keep it moving. I mean, we didn't have that much of a draw because people were walking by thinking it was still like the, the uh, um, uh, they still thought it was Fridays, which was like, you know, donation kind of cash for the product kind of. But we got some structure in there and um, we just been pushing ever since to uh, make it better have better employees, be better about our food, be better about consistency. Um, I mean, we were so blessed in the second year of being Shines. They gave us a contract at um, the Rose Garden. We were there for 10 years. We beat out McDonald's. Not McDonald's would come and make, pay like $9 million to be there. Or something crazy. And, and um, the general manager of the uh, uh, Rose Garden was like, nah, we want Shines here. So we oh, were man, the first. respect to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were, we, I mean, he's a good guy, man. He's a decent human being, really, really <laughs> smart fellow. But he was the one who got started that idea of like, you know, 
homegrown or like community-based restaurants being in there. And we were in there the longest and um, we bowed out a year and a half ago. Um, we didn't see the impact that we had, but a lot of people left that weren't even our employees. They were just, just the example that we set through love and kindness and forgiveness, you know what I mean? Allowing people to make the mistakes, allowing people to, I mean, that's how I teach. Like, you know, I'm gonna give you the information. If you don't understand the information, let me know so we can go over it and I won't get tired of going over it. You know, uh, uh, the ability to be kind and, and the ability to be, uh, to have forgiveness in your heart is um, something you have to work on because you have to look at yourself and look at how you might respond depending on the day, depending on the hour, depending on the year, doesn't matter. But, you know, for, uh, I can't, la I can't lash out at people because that's not going to help them. But if that helps them, uh, my discernment will tell me and I'll lash out at people. I mean, uh, uh, Lauren Hill says it quite eloquently. Sometimes you got to add a motherfucker for those ignorant niggas that can feel you. So, you know, sometimes you got to use foul ass language for folks to, to get the picture. And I'm all right with that because I cuss a lot and I'm not really trying to stop cussing because it, it's part of my character, I think. But um, I mean, that's how it got started. You know what I mean? It's a family owned restaurant and we take what we do serious. It's not, um, we are a nonprofit that might be switching soon, but um, it won't change the mission. You know, it, it's a uh, entrepreneurial ministry and we take all kinds because, you know, we have all kinds and somebody has to be responsible for those ones that nobody wants. And sometimes those that nobody wants fall into our lap and we do the best we can. And we've never really fired anybody. They just leave. It's interesting what unconditional love will do to people. It will force them to see themselves, but also scare them because a lot of people aren't used to that unconditional love. They don't, they, they're waiting for something at the end of it. They're waiting for the ball to drop or the curtain to fall on them. You know what I mean? And we're not, we're not those kind of people at all. We're, we're gluttons for um, punishment, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> That's so incredibly inspiring and unique. It's particularly in a restaurant environment, I think, um, to be able to maintain your values and adhere to them with such tenacity and be able to provide that. I mean, feeding people is, is ministry in itself. Feeding people is such a powerful communion. And for you to be combining that with the ministry and with this, this incredible mission of kindness is just, it's really, it's really unique. It really shows and um, the way you talk and the food y'all are making. And it's, it's really special. How has COVID affected you guys? Like what's going on right now? How are you guys hanging in and-, and Oh, we're not hanging in, we're doing you. better. We're doing better than ever. You know, Tell our us about pastor, that. <laughs> once, once, once we recognized what was going on and, 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 and um, um, saw the seriousness of it, um, we, sh we, didn't, we never shut our doors. We just put a table in front so you can't come in. And um, uh, we stay masked up. <laughs> Ready for war, so we stay masked up. And um, we, um, um, as soon as it happened, our senior pastor was like, you know, what about the seniors? We need to feed the seniors. So we created a program where we feed the seniors Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday for free. And then uh, we were like, well, what about the indigent people? And um, um, our general manager, John Tolbert, he, um, 
um, figured out a way where someone had asked us, would we be willing to start feeding the homeless or the indigent community? So we do that too, you know, down there in the Charles Jordan Center. We did that all summer long and prior to summer. And um, it's been beneficial for us as a, uh, for us to learn about people and to learn about what situations people are being, that are in and to be prayerful for those people um, because this is real. You know, we learned that a lot of, um, we learned that a lot of uh, elderly or old folks homes, they, um, even the nurses left. I mean, a lot of these places that are like uh, living facilities, all the people that work there left the old people there to fend for themselves. Like who does that? Who does that? I mean, and that's something we need to, Fear. Care, change, and address. Um, I could get deep and say that, you know, one of the benefits of paying attention to mass genocide is that when these factions come into power, they get rid of the handicapped and the elderly and the ones that have intellect. They get rid of all of them first. Then they start the genocide. Does that make sense to you? So I had a little fear in my loins going, what's going on here? What is this? A, is this a coup for something else? Cause I'm a subversive thinker. I think, you know, all around the box, inside the box, you know, I do research, all this other stuff. But it was just looking real fishy. Like, hold on a second. How can we allow this to happen? We get the homeless eating, but ain't nobody paying attention to the old people. Is this plotted? What's going on? But I kept my mouth shut and just stayed prayerful. Those are things we need to pay attention to because, you know, uh, mass pandemic, who do you help first? You help those who can't help themselves first. We didn't do that. As, as America, we did not do that. We just helped, I guess, where we could, if we could. But, you know, there was no direct uh, impact on these people who need it the most. Right. It's not so, coming from leadership. It's coming right. from community. Right. Community that is, cho- is brave enough, that's choosing in, that understands the things you're talking about. Is Post Shines open to the public? Can y'all do? Are y'all doing takeout? Like, how can people find you? How can we're people all, support we're you? We're only doing takeout. Uh, we still do catering. We have outdoor seating in the front. We do have our picnic tables, and then we have outdoor seating directly out front. I believe we got four, three tops. I mean, uh, three, four tops set up out front, like where cars would normally be. So people are welcome to sit there. They're welcome to sit at the picnic tables. But we get a lot of to go business. I mean, this um, this pandemic thing has um, illuminated our business and um, brought us to the forefront of, um, I guess, change. Like, I mean, I'm I'm willing to do to go food forever. I'm cool. I mean, I'm, and all of our employees are cool. People are cool. So people are willing to support us because we're people of color, and <laughs> <laughs> we'll take that money too. I'm not clowning. I'm just saying that is what it is. It's and true. It is. It is our having. Numbers, yeah. It's our a numbers moment. have increased, and I'm not even. I'm just looking like, is this what it takes? Really? Okay. We'll do it. So uh, with that being said, you know what I mean? I, I, um, I'm i not mad at folks, you know, come support your local black business right on. But find some other black businesses you could support too. find some people that you don't even know. Say hello to them. You know what I mean? Join the Urban League, join the NAACP, join the ALCU. I don't know. Sweep somebody, sweep somebody's porch, pick up some trash in these impoverished neighborhoods. You know, I don't know. Uh, pray about it. Think about what you really if you want to make an impact, you got to get off your ass and make an impact. That's what you got to do. It's simple. I mean, uh, there was a reporter who quoted me in the Oregonian, to which I really didn't want. Anyway, 
um, she masqueraded like this, that, and the other, and wound up getting my statement. And it just, uh, it took me aback. It, I was just like, you know, what do you, because the protesters came through here and um, burned up our trash can, and I didn't care. But I didn't understand what burning up the trash can had to do with Black Lives Matter. I was totally lost. I, I didn't get it. And she asked me, what can we do? I said, you can pick up some trash. You can pay attention to these neighborhoods who need some help. You know what I mean? And some people who need some help. You could do it. Just ask yourself, what can you do? It's not about money all the time. It isn't. It's about health. It's about, you know, saying hello to that person that smells like urine on the corner. It, it's about, you know, being kind and being and being um, effective in our responsibility to love one another just because we have love in our hearts. And if you don't have love in your hearts, create some, develop some. Everybody has it and we just can't be afraid of it. I, I believe that why we're afraid of it is because there's a responsibility that comes behind that. And that's the check-in. Hey, how you doing? I know I said hello the other day, but just making sure that situation, people consider that work. How's that work when you're breathing in free oxygen? There's a work? lot of vulnerability, isn't there, with being yeah. kind that takes a, an incredible amount of strength and bravery in a world that doesn't always support that. Like even you're talking about in your story, how you have to learn how to protect yourself in this world, it's rough. Yeah. Um, and we often learn how to, to steal up and fight to protect ourselves versus tear down the walls and open our hearts and put ourselves out there vulnerably. Yeah. It sounds like you guys are doing really amazing work. How can people, we're about to need to wrap up here. How can people support your ministry? Oh, um, pray for us. Uh, okay. I believe we have a Venmo account open. What's it? What is it? Uh, Venmo at Potions. Yeah. Venmo at Potions. Okay. So if you want to, you know, participate financially, you could do that for the senior dinners or what have you. Come in and eat. Um, uh, again, just be prayerful. Uh, we're going to be open regardless. Me and so, Dick uh, are coming. Yeah, we're coming to eat for sure. Yeah, we're going to hook up and head over. Yeah, you cool. should because it's, <laughs> it, it's a good time. And we, we take it serious. We take it serious. We laugh the whole time, but we take what we do serious because we know, I know that I've been called to this corner and I'm not going to move until the Lord moves me. So that's where I'm at. You know, well, it's thank not, you um, so much for the work yeah. you're doing. It's really deeply appreciated and your words are deeply appreciated. Is there any last thoughts you have that you might want to share with the listeners? Um, just be kind to each other. I can't. Um... These are, uh, I keep using the word tumultuous. Um, these are nervous times for a lot of people. And I get a little misty because uh, I get to thinking about people who don't have family. And I get to thinking about how heavy that could be if you don't have a support group and add in the fact that you don't have the food that you need so that your body can do its work. So it's important and imperative that we're kind and loving and gentle with each other because in all sincerity, we really don't know each other as much as we should. And if it takes a lifetime of work to know each other, that's what we need to do. Because uh, love brought us here. And Lord willing, love will take us out of here. But in the interim, recognize that forgiveness. And again, kindness, I can't say it enough. And... Um, 
just being straight up with each other and honest with each other in those times is what we need more than anything else. We have a, we have a, we have a leader in office. I'm not a political person. I don't get into that shit, but we have a leader in office who's quite confused. So we need to be extremely prayerful for him because he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, but if that kind of leadership is running this country, I can't imagine what's happening in other states. I really can't because sooner or later, uh, every state will go for its own self and will not want to be part of the United States because of, because of how it's being led. Every state will be a country and I don't want to see that happen. None of us want to see that happen. Then we'll go to war with each other, which is ridiculous. So we just need to be kind and to be loving and, and, and with a repentant heart, you know, just be each other's brothers and sisters, man. And stop judging because it, it takes so much work to judge. It takes so much work to hold guilt. It takes so much work to harbor resentment, all this stuff. Just if you ain't got nothing nice to say, don't say anything. Just a kind wave would be fine, you know, until you muster up the energy to say hello and have a great day. If you can only do that, do that. Work on that. You know, if you can't get further than that, I don't know what to tell you. Because again, the oxygen is free and God provided it. You know, we didn't build these trees to provide us oxygen. We didn't. We didn't. You know, we, uh, we, we take a whole lot for granted. That's where I'm at. We take a whole lot for granted. So if we could, you know, get off our high horses and again, be kind and resourceful in our kindness, resourceful in our forgiveness, I think that we're going to be okay. But uh, when you see people walking down the street and you catch eye contact, say hello and say hello from the bottom of your heart. Yeah, beautifully put. Uh, Chef James, thanks again so much for being a guest today, man. We could easily went three hours talking to you, like no question. Love to have you on the show again, man, sometime if that's cool with you. Okay. Uh, again, <laughs> the, again, the restaurant is Paul Shines Cafe de la Sol, located at 8139 North Denver Avenue in Portland. Me and Meg will be there shortly, and I definitely recommend everyone check that out. Uh, thank you again to Meg, as always, Alon, and you can catch us here every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Stand-Up Time at StartupRadioNetwork.com. And we'll see you next week. Peace. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.